We are continuing um, our class series on the life of Jesus. Who is Jesus really? When we left off last week, Jesus was in the synagogue at Capernaum saying, um, unless you have eaten the flesh of the son of man and drunk his blood, you do not have life within you. But if you have eaten my flesh and drunk my blood, you have eternal life and I will raise you up on the last day. We wrestled with these shocking graphic words last week in our breakout groups. And if you were one of the ones thinking this was a bridge too far, you would not be alone. Lots of the disciples think the same thing. And Jesus says, is this causing you to stumble? Then what if you see me going up to where I was before? Don't get all hung up on the flesh part. The flesh isn't the important part. The words I have spoken to you are spirit. They are full of spirit and life. The spirit gives life. John says Jesus knew from the very beginning who would not believe and who would betray him. Now, Christians tend to jump to the conclusion that this is talking about Judas. But doesn't say Judas, does it? So it's not necessarily the case. And the statement itself is in the context of lots of the disciples grumbling about the, you know, blood and body stuff, not just Judas. Judas actually stuck with Jesus. He didn't leave because of this. It is the other three gospel writers who place the this is my body and this is my blood stuff at the Last Supper. John places this whole conversation long before the Last Supper, which is why we're studying it right now. And according to John, that statement causes a mutiny. John may be saying here that lots of disciples are going to betray Jesus one way or another, and that Jesus knew from the beginning who they would be. Jesus has just told his disciples, my words give life. They are spirit and life. This is not about the flesh. He says, that's why I said no one has the power to come to me unless the father drags them. I think Jesus is saying, number one, he did not mean the eat my flesh and drink my blood stuff literally, but he meant it spiritually. And two, you're not going to understand it unless you see and hear with spiritual eyes and ears. And three, you can only do that if you open yourself to the Holy Spirit. You can't do it yourself. And the Father, the Holy Spirit, is working hard to help you in spite of yourself. Nevertheless, Jesus' disciples fracture. Many of his disciples leave him at this point. And based on what we read before, it sounds like many of them begin to betray him and work against him. We've seen this exact same thing happen over and over again in churches, haven't we? At this point, the Pharisees smell blood in the water, no pun intended, 
These are important Pharisees who have come all the way from Jerusalem. These are the self-proclaimed gatekeepers for God. They instruct the people in the ways to please God and warn them against actions that are against God's commands. That's what they do. The Pharisees are not bad people as a whole. Surely many of them are genuinely trying to follow God and are trying to help the people follow God. But Jesus isn't playing by the rules. Jesus does not recognize anyone's authority as gatekeeper for God. We pastors need to remember that. The Pharisees have fallen into the common trap of thinking they have a right to be God's mediator for the people. They have power and they are careful to protect it. And Jesus is a huge threat. The people are starting to go to Jesus with their questions rather than to the Pharisees. So they're probably thrilled when Jesus' disciples start splitting apart. Certainly, Jesus' teaching on eating his body and drinking his blood make him sound like a lunatic. And they've noticed Jesus' disciples are failing to keep up with all of God's requirements. They ask Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before eating? Why don't they observe the proper traditions? This is a reflection on Jesus and a further dent in Jesus' status as a holy prophet of God. Now, these traditions they're talking about are not actually commands in the Hebrew Bible. They are extrapolations of those commands. The Pharisees are scrupulous in making sure they conform not only to the law, but also to all these traditions, and they police other people's compliance as well. Jesus replies, why do you break God's commands for the sake of your traditions? God's command is to honor your father and mother and care for them. But you neglect your father and mother and then use the funds as offerings to God. These extravagant offerings increase the Pharisees' status as righteous men in the eyes of others, right? While the reality is the money is coming at the expense of the elderly and the needy. And that is not an acceptable sacrifice to God. It's sort of like donating millions to build a new wing on the church and have it named after you while your parents live on a tiny allowance. Jesus says, you do lots of things like that, you hypocrites. Isaiah the prophet was right about you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but not with their hearts. Their worship means nothing to me. Their teachings are nothing but human rules. Well, as usual, we want to go back and look at the context of this prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. It turns out to be the beginning of a section that goes on to say, therefore, I will astonish you once again with wonder upon wonder. Woe to those who think the things they do in secret are hidden from the Lord. In that day, whoops, there's our red flag, that special phrase that means the end time. In that day, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. Once again, the humble and the needy will rejoice in the Lord 
the Holy One of Israel. All those with an eye for evil will be cut down. When my people see the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy and stand in awe of me. Those who erred or misled in spirit will finally come to understand. And those who criticized or grumbled or slandered will finally learn and understand. Wow, it is so helpful to see the entire passage so we know how Jesus' words would have landed on the Pharisees. What he quotes to the Pharisees is that blue part that they honor God with their lips only and their worship is worthless and their teachings are nothing but rules. That's true, but harsh. But look at the underlying message of love in the rest of that prophetic passage, a passage both Jesus and the Pharisees know. In the end time, those who err and mislead people, those who criticize and slander, will finally come to understand. God is not going to throw the Pharisees away. That changes the entire tenor of this response from Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus turns and says to the people, listen, folks, it is not eating with dirty hands that makes you unclean. Nothing from outside you can make you unclean by going into you. It is what comes from within you that defiles you. Now, the disciples ask him about this later. And Jesus like gets really graphic with them. He he spells it out. He tells them, it doesn't matter what you eat. You're going to poop it out eventually. But the things that come from within you, the words you say, the things you do, those are coming from your heart. It is from your heart that evil motives come. And Jesus lists, lists some examples. Pornea, which is the root from which we get the word pornography, Most Bibles translate this word as sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wicked malice, deceitfulness, wanton, unbridled lewdness, an eye for evil, slander, pridefulness or arrogance, and recklessness. This is called a vice list. It is used to paint a picture of evil. There are several vice lists in the New Testament, and the specific items on each list vary, and that's important to remember. These lists are not meant to be exhaustive, nor even particularly specific. They're not saying that each of these particular evils are worse than others. It's just a way of giving examples of the kinds of things that we all know are evil, These are things we do that harm ourselves and others. An evil heart bears fruit like this. A good heart does not. Certainly no one is 100% evil nor 100% good. We all bear a mixture. But taken as a whole, when we find groupings of these sorts of fruits in someone We we should know that we don't want to be following this person or their teachings. Jesus says, these are the kinds of things that can come from within you. This, This is what defiles you. 
then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and absolutely lets them have it. Does he yell? I don't know. The picture looks like he's yelling. Does he say these things with sadness? Surely. But he definitely begins to, as he talks, you can listen and you can kind of hear his emotion begin to build. He says, you Pharisees clean the outside of the vessels, but inside you are full of plundering and pillaging and wickedness. You fools, the one who made the outside also made the inside. If you want to be clean, be clean on the inside. Offer mercy. Then he starts with a whole list of woes. These are found in Matthew 23 and in Luke 11, but although their lists, their versions are somewhat different. I'm going to use a blend of the two versions here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't enter. You won't let anyone enter either. You hypocrites. You scour the earth to make converts. And when you succeed, you make them twice the son of Gehenna that you are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you love being important, having the chief seats in the synagogues and the salutations in the marketplace. Woe to you, blind guides. You tell people it's okay to swear by the temple and break that oath. But that if they swear by the gold of the temple, then they have to keep that oath. You blind, blind people, which is more sacred, the gold of the temple or the temple itself? You say that if they swear by the altar, they can break that oath. But if they swear by the sacrifice on the altar, they are bound. Which is greater, the sacrifice or the altar? The altar, of course. Anyone who swears by the altar is swearing by the altar and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple is swearing by the one inhabiting in it. And anyone who makes a vow by heaven is, is making a vow by the throne of heaven and by God who sits on that throne. You tithe a tenth of your best garden herbs to God. But you neglect justice, mercy, and faith. You neglect loving God. You should have done it all. You have issues with a net, but you got no problem swallowing a camel. Woe to you hypocrites. You you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of death on the inside. You look righteous to people on the outside, but you are full of hypocrisy and you are utterly against God's law. Now, Luke's version is much the same, but in Luke's version, Jesus begins this whole tirade by addressing his woes to the Pharisees only. 
and not to the scribes. Now, the scribes are experts in the law of Moses, and they hang around with the Pharisees, backing up everything they say. So in Luke's version, a scribe pipes up at this point and says, Rabbi, you are insulting us scribes too when you insult the Pharisees. I'm pretty sure he means that as a threat. But Jesus isn't cowed in the least. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes, you religious lawyers. You pile burdens on people so high they can barely move. While you yourself don't touch those same burdens with even one little finger. And that sounds to me as if the scribes are not even trying to follow the hundreds of traditions, um, as well as the commands of the law of Moses, that they are so strict to lay on the people. Jesus says, woe to you. Your ancestors killed the prophets, and you claim you would never do such a thing. And yet you bear witness that you are their descendants by building the prophets' grand tombs, Obviously, you approve of their death. So finish what they started. Who you can feel, you can hear that Jesus is, has finally gotten really worked up. He is really, really angry with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he sees such a strong parallel between them and their ancestors. Their ancestors murdered the prophets whenever they didn't like what they said. Jesus is in a dangerous position here. Jesus is telling the scribes and Pharisees that what they are doing to the people is the same as murder. They are pushing people away from God, teaching them falsely, and burdening them with hundreds and hundreds of rules so the people that will supposedly make the people pleasing to God. They may not be murdering people's bodies, but they are sure bringing death to people's souls. You snakes, he says, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape a verdict of Gehenna? Now, Gehenna is the name of the local trash heap. He's saying that when the words and actions of the scribes and Pharisees are seen in full, when they are judged, when, they, when it will become clear that they have produced nothing but trash. And, you know, you can feel Jesus' momentum just, just building and building and building. And now he slips into prophecy mode. He seems to be speaking the very words of God as he says, look, because of this, I send you prophets and wise ones and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And thus upon your heads will fall all the righteous blood that has been spilled on this earth. From Abel to Zechariah, who was murdered as he stood prophesying near the altar in the temple courtyard. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, killing and stoning the prophets and the others I have sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, there is nothing left to you but a deserted house. Then he says, 
you will not see me again from now until you say, blessed is one coming in the name of the Lord. Well, that's a sort of a strange thing to say here because these people obviously do see Jesus many more times before his crucifixion. So this is an indication that this passage may belong elsewhere in the story chronologically. In fact, Luke, who also has this whole section of woes, splits this bit about Jerusalem out and has Jesus saying it as he enters Jerusalem just before the crucifixion. So you can see here kind of literary evidence of Matthew and Luke both copying these bits in from what whatever their source was. Later, when the disciples get Jesus alone, they say, you do know that you totally offended the Pharisees just now, right? And Jesus says, you know what? Ignore them. They are the blind leading the blind. Everything not planted by my heavenly father will end up being uprooted. And Peter says, so um, what did you mean exactly when you said that what goes into a mouth does not make you unclean? I want you to remember this question of Peter's. He's going to ask it again much, much later after Jesus is gone. Being clean versus unclean seems to be a very big deal to Peter personally. He is a Jew's Jew, absolutely scrupulous about following the commands of the law. So he's totally confused when Jesus says that what you put in your mouth does not make you unclean. The law of Moses describes all sorts of things you cannot eat, things like bacon or shellfish. And Jesus says, don't you guys get it yet? What you put in your mouth goes through your body and what is unclean comes out the other end. It does not stay in your body and make you unclean. Well, after that dressing down, the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem have got to be spitting nails. I think Jesus has to flee for a bit while things settle down because he leaves Galilee here and travels all the way to Syrophoenicia on the coast of the Mediterranean. Now, this is not like the next town over, like Bethsaidon. It's not, this is a good long hike of 30 to 50 miles, depending on where exactly he goes. And it's not flat land either. Syrophoenicia is not part of the Herodian Tetrarchy. This has always been a separate country from Israel, usually um, an enemy and always portrayed in the Hebrew Bible as, as being filled with the worst sort of idol worshipers. Um, ha have you ever heard of Queen Jezebel? Syrophoenicia is where she came from. It is a great place for Jesus and the disciples to lay low for a bit. Though I'm, I'm just reading this in between the lines, taking my hints from the geography and the timing of the story. Jesus and the, I think Jesus and the disciples hole up in a house there in Syrophoenicia. But his reputation has spread even that far away. A Greek Syrophoenician woman comes to the house and falls at Jesus' feet crying, 
please come and drive the demon from my daughter. She is suffering terribly. Now, in Matthew's version of this, the woman calls Jesus Lord, son of David, which fits the viewpoint of Matthew's book. Matthew's the one who uses prophecy and is trying to prove Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. But that Lord, son of David phrase is omitted from Luke's version. So again, you can, you can see their particular perspectives coming into play just in how they tell the stories. Well, Jesus ignores the woman. He won't even speak to her. His disciples try to get him to make her leave, saying, send her away. So Jesus tells her, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That's a pretty famous quote. Um, and that is the common translation. But the word for lost here can be translated and often is translated as utterly destroyed. So this sentence could also be translated as, I was only sent to the sheep of Israel who are being utterly destroyed. That's like a lot stronger statement, right? God has sent Jesus because Israel is like sheep being led to the slaughter. Their religious leaders are leading them further and further from God's way. Notice that Jesus does not believe his mission is to the Gentiles. Despite all the prophecies at his birth, uh, all the Hebrew Bible bits that say the good news is for all of the nations, Jesus is very focused on his role as a Jew, bringing good news to the Jews. And he tells the woman, let the children eat their fill first. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. It is so interesting to me that he uses the word puppies. That is a much gentler word than dogs, which is how this verse is often translated. Also, he's not denying the Gentiles. He's only saying that Israel must come first. Uh, any any preacher, prophet, minister, pastor, anyone in the, in service knows they have limited bandwidth. And, and I think Jesus is talking about his human limitations here. But the woman says, even so, Lord, even the puppies eat the crumbs that fall under the children's table. And Jesus says, because of your word, go. The demon has left your daughter. Matthew's version says it was because of her faith, but Mark's version that I've quoted here resonates more strongly with me. The woman has spoken truth and Jesus recognizes it. The Gentiles are included. Their faith counts too. We'll compare Matthew and Mark's versions of Jesus' words in our breakout groups. The different tellings give a very different flavor. God, I didn't get the last word. <laughs> did somebody get cut off in the middle of a sentence? Yes, Rhonda did. What were you saying? The four related like seconds ago and I'm like forgetting. Well, <laughs> I was just talking, we were talking about the difference of scripture and telephone. You know, I mean, we were talking yes. about how in and you know, how we all come from different backgrounds. We all read the same, 
we versions here, but we all put our, you know, our focus on it. And then Julia mentioned something about telephone. And I'm like, you know, one of the things the last few years and even other times, it's just sort of been an irritant when people say the Bible is true. It's factual. This is the truth. This is what God says. You know, and I said, it's like telephone. It's, you know, we all, we all would have totally different stories based on what we've learned today, even. So anyway, yeah. it's just sort of opened yeah. my eyes. You know, I get very skeptical when people are like, oh, the Bible is in, in you know, accurate. No, you know, like, mistakes. Yeah. Oh, you should see the faces that I get from people and the, from my older children, even, even the reaction I get when I say, yes, the Bible originally in, in the actual words that came originally was inspired by God and was what God wanted out there. But through time, it's been um, corrupted. And <laughs> what we have now is various people's ideas of what it said and not what it actually said and oh do i get some looks you sure you might get one of those looks from me right now <laughs> that i think god is still in the bible and inspiring and guiding and that's one reason why we use the committees as well so that it's not one individual dictating it but it does change so much we i was in a bible study i think last week when this the preacher said that somebody told him once that all this mumbo jumbo in these new versions that he wanted to go back to the original bible meaning king james yes. oh that kills me <laughs> okay so he was he was advocating for king james in the bible study and it was like the preacher was like yeah, no, that's not the original. No. So I was kind of pointing out in our group that even among the six of us, um, because we had dis discussions about, you know, almost denominations, literal versus um, um, figurative versus metaphysical, in among the six of us, mm -hmm. in one little microcosm, and then I kind of extrapolated it out to, and yet, we're in denominations that think we're right. I mean, it, it's across the board kind of, you know, and I don't know. Each I don't even know. nation has the one true message. Right. I, I think I lost what I was going to go at the end of that. But, but one of the things Welcome I said, my world. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the things I was telling him is that um, we had a pastor at a Methodist church um, who, like you, loves etymology. And we heard lots of etymology. Uh, she's the first person I heard about agape love. And she, I remember a sermon on this because we had a pretty interesting talk afterwards. And I, I guess I'm hoping I'm not jumping too far ahead. But she told us that unclean and other religious persons in an insult were called dogs. Mm -hmm. And the use of the word puppies was like a softening or thought-provoking invitation to the woman who responded very well to, yeah, but even dogs get crumbs. And then even, even puppies the dogs, get crumbs. Yeah. The puppies, mm -hmm. uh, the puppies mm -hmm. get crumbs. And, and so I was saying, so to truly understand this, do we have to take like every word and look up the etymology? Because 
without, because without knowing that context, look at all the crazy directions we can take a simple message. I am mm-hmm. so glad exactly. to hear that somebody else noticed and taught you that the word was puppies. I had never heard that from anybody until mm-hmm. I looked it up when I was writing this lesson. Um, but it is a much softer word. And you're in the same mold as, Kath, as our pastor. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say real quick while I have a chance, I'm sorry, Sedona, uh, just thinking what we're talking about in our little group, how there were that many different people thinking different things. Remember how all these denominations came about. It was because of those different things that they thought that ultimately they broke off. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes even without worrying so much, because I'm the same way, every single word, you got to know what it meant at that day and whatever a place that I keep telling myself I need to start is just really seeing what those big differences were that broke everybody off into the pieces. Even before you get down and say, what were the things they were already, you know, some of them a little bit, but I think most of the time we're in our own little denominational world and you don't even know. I mean, Baptists, we, you know, we didn't even consider Catholics Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That's you how know, I was raised, you know, the Pope, they didn't, even, they didn't even get counted. <laughs> they weren't even counted. So, but you know, that's a long time ago, but it's still the kind of <laughs> Mary's thinking. cracking up. <laughs> I, I know, I know. But anyhow, I'm, Mary, I had you're a muted. chance to say anything and I'm now going to say too much. So let me get off. <laughs> no, you're, no, 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 you're, you're fine. That's wonderful. Well, we love hearing your voice, but I do want to go back to a, something that Joe said, that Joe touched on, is how can we even study the Bible without losing the forest for the trees? How do we know which words to look up? We can't look up every single word, and I, that is an important thing, and I want to tell you that the way that you know which words to look up is if you're reading a passage and it doesn't jive with what you know of God. If it is harsh, if it is rejecting, if it is, you know, unlove, if it, if it has no redemption undertone in it, if it is not merciful, if it is not just, if it is not compassionate, if it is not tender, if it is not forgiving, stop and think what am i missing here is there another plot is there a word here that's causing me this whole passage to kind of sound a little off look that word up think about the context think about who's writing that word is there another place where this same passage is can i go read that other place in its other context um that's how I know which words to look up. And I don't look up every single it. word. I don't read this in the Greek and the Hebrew folks. Right. <laughs> but until this Bible study, I would have not thought to read something and say, what doesn't jive with love and mercy? Because I heard a lot of fire and brimstone growing up exactly. and punishment and burning in the fire. And so <clears throat> in that context, it's different. It to all fits. Up, it sounds it great, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, but in that context, it's very different than what we're looking up here. Mm -hmm. so, well, and I think also um, <coughs> what struck me with the, the examples you gave us today, Gail, is through the NIV translation and what you looked up in the Greek translation, it made um, Matthew more um, exclusionary. Exclusionary, yes. Yeah, well, he was very it, Jewish oriented, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it made it, it, it showed um, that the people of the time, whether it was because of what they were being taught by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, did not think of other people as being equal. Absolutely. Not you know, God, so, certainly, yes. I thought it was so something when Donna spoke, and then Renee, you just reinforced it. Not only do you need to know the words, but you need to think a little bit about the current events that were going mm -hmm. on for what, how those words would be applied. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And again, I've never had anybody present the Bible study as carefully with maps and who is who and the leader and, and <laughs> that's all tables. context. That's yeah. all context. Dude, and, and the problem is it takes so much time. We've been doing this for going on three years now folks and and you have committed the time to do it a pastor in a church who has or a sunday school teacher who who is allowed six weeks for an hour one hour for six weeks to cover some topic is not going to be able to give you these big huge underlying themes where you can see how it all fits together and is a whole. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I actually went to Bible college. And so I, you know, I had Bible classes, you know, first year's Old Testament survey and New Testament survey. And then the next year you get into various books and you know, major prophets, the minor prophets, poetic books, blah, blah, blah. Um, and even in those classes, I was not given the tools right. that you have provided us with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it wasn't broken down. Again, I was in a conservative Baptist college. Not that there's anything wrong with being a Baptist, but, they um, a but I was in a conservative <laughs> Baptist college that had an agenda. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so I got their viewpoint and, you know, it wasn't open to translation. It wasn't open to understanding it a different way. Other way. And, and, you know, I love the fact that in this class, we don't have to all agree. I haven't agreed with everything that you've taught, mm -hmm. but I have Good. been <laughs> given healthy. that, but I have been given tools to be able to understand why I believe what I believe. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's major league important. It mm -hmm. really is. That's why I picked a backpack as the logo kind of for the gentle ramble, yeah. you know, as it's in its entirety, um, because it is far more important that each of you learn these tools that you realize the geography is like a character. 
that it matters. Yeah. The yeah. politics are like a character that it matters. Um, mm-hmm. It matters what's going on in the world when that particular passage is done. And it matters to me that you know that you, for maybe the first time in you, your life, s- hear the Bible chronologically. Mm-hmm. Right. Can I say on that real quick? And I promise the thing that I don't know if everybody's aware of, it's helped me. You talk about looking up all the different things. And again, that's so helpful to try to look and get the audience and all that. If you don't have a, a, now I forgot the word of it, the Bible, the one comparison, no, the one that has all the different parallel Bible, parallel, thank you. Or even better, if you can, on the Gateway, I know there's like more than one, but there's like gateway.com online. Right, Biblehub.com, Blue Letter Bible. Yeah, there you go. You can pick which versions and see like three or four or however many at a time. And if you just look across, that definitely provokes just some questions to go, well, hmm, that doesn't sound like they're saying the same thing over here. And you can at least maybe go from that point. So that used to scare me because again, I did, I grew up in the same kind of thing. You didn't question, this is what they told you it meant. Mm-hmm. If you try to find out something different, then you're on the wrong path and headed, mm-hmm. you know, where. because I had lots of questions and nobody could, nobody ever answered anything except basically that's just how it is. So, mm-hmm. Anyway, but I didn't know, I thought I'd throw out that with the parallel Bible for us who want to do that, where you want to take every word. <laughs> About three years ago, Gail taught a book on um, Mark. Mark, thank you. All of a sudden, my mind went blank. Julia and I were there, and Lou Mar was in our group, um, hosted at her house. And at the end of it, because that was my beautiful introduction to the chiasm. (laughs) So, and I told her, you know, one time we were talking about the backpack tools, because I was an English teacher and I didn't know what a chiasm was. Um, I said, you know, why are churches and pastors not teaching us the Bible using these backpack tools? Because it's it's so extraordinarily different and revolutionary. And Gail, I don't, do you remember what you told me? You There's said, no telling. <laughs> you, said, no, no. you said we're all introduced to this in the seminary. It's it's there. We're all introduced to this. That actually is right. It's just a lot of work to unpack it. And, and I don't remember the rest of it, but I just remember you saying that we're all introduced to it. And so at that point, it's a matter of, I guess, choosing it to go deep or carrying on the path that you already know that you've been mm-hmm. taught in. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm and I'm trying to give you these tools that I learned in the seminary, as well as what I had gathered in my lifetime, because they're not that hard. It's not rocket science, you know. I'm trying to teach you how to approach the scripture and how to read. And next week, we're going to run into some of that. We're going to have two chiasms next week, um, <laughs> and and you're going to recognize oh, I don't why know what they, a chiasm is. Annie's, Annie's shaking her head and Anna making a chiasm shirt for you too. I was going to mention something. Somebody said something about the church having an agenda. And who was it? I, I know I, for one. Okay. I mean, well, sorry. When, 
when I first heard these scriptures in the beginning, before we started unpacking this, it sounded to me like Jesus had an agenda. <laughs> he does. And, <laughs> and agenda, the like, word agenda isn't necessarily bad. We use it bad all the time. Right. Everybody's agenda. But when I first heard this, it was like, I'm here for the Jews. Yes. I, I got my I got my directive from the big guy, and I'm going to focus on this group of people. I don't have time for the rest of it or bandwidth even. And so I think unpacking this in our small group and going through some of the questions, that's not what he said. Right. But I sure heard it when I heard it the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, but to that translation point, has something to do with that. Yeah, but to that point, why is that there? Because it does look just like that... in Matthews. It says, "I came only in the NIV." It says, "I came only to the children of Israel." Mm-hmm. But in yours, the the way you translated it, it didn't say it didn't exclude the others. Right. It said, "You know, I came." For this purpose, I came first for this. And in Mark's, it doesn't exclude the others. It says, I came here first, and then we'll go on to the other groups. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the pattern for the entire Bible. The, this, the Bible was written by Jews, you know, and it was from the mm-hmm. perspective of these are the people God chose to be a blessing for all the nations of the world. That was the original Abrahamic manifesto from God. Is I am choosing you, Abraham, to become a great nation, to be to walk with, to walk before me and be holy, and to be a blessing for all generations of the world. And the Jews understood that special call. It is a special call. It is mm-hmm. a special call. It's different than, you know, maybe how, how God related to Gentiles. You know, we don't have the Gentile stories of, of the time. We do, but they're not Jewish. Okay. And, um, right. and so, so as we are tracking through the Hebrew Bible, keep in mind, we are looking at it through the lens of people who are Jews. You know, before including Jesus. Before Abraham's time, you know, God was dealing with people, but there weren't Jews. That's right. There were people. They're just people. I mean, before the Tower of Babel, they weren't even different nations. It was just the human race. Mm -hmm. And I mean, God, God created people in his image. God loves the people, we got the separation at the Tower of Babel. We got the Jews through the line of Abraham, but it started out everybody. And it ends up everybody, right? That yeah. is the promise of the resurrection. And, um, and, the, and God is God throughout all. And I hope, I, I can't remember who started this out. I think maybe Julia, no, I can't remember who started this out with, you know, the Bible having an issue with the Bible being true, uh, Rhonda maybe, and, 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 and about 
it, how it is all these different voices that were imperfect as they started out. But I, and I want to say, you know, absolutely, this is all written by people, you know, with particular lenses. But throughout all of it, the spirit lives and breathes. And the spirit itself is truth. These people are communicating truth to us. It's just how they communicate it is human. <laughs> and and this and so yeah, so it's so helpful to have all of their voices. It's so fabulous to have so many voices telling us the same truth, the same story, because we can kind of triangulate on it with our own experience and understand. You know what, again, using the word agenda, as Donna said, an agenda is not necessarily a bad thing. And different voices, different agendas, kind of a a similar word. I can't think of the word I want, but um, they're kind of the same thing. We've got different voices. We've got different perspectives. We've got different different agendas. And knowing what that person's Right. Mm -hmm. And knowing what the writer's voice, what the writer's perspective, what the writer's agenda is, helps us um, glean an understanding of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. We can separate separate things out and understand them better and not just get hung up on on their particular vocabulary or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Gail, right. when you were explaining about how it was the Jews and the, the the audience and all that, I heard all that growing up from my parents, only it was about being Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, y'all are a hoot. Well, I'm ready to go to my scrapbooking thing, so we're going to shut this down. Ooh, I'm going to go to have some gal pal time. And um, remember to change your calendars. We're hopping forward to have class at noon from now on. I am going to pull some of the other people who are here all the time to make sure that there's not like a, a group of us that would not be able to do it. Um, it. But but for now, the plan is to move to noon and the video will be late this week because I'm going to just download this sucker and then I'm going to get in the car and I'll do all the processing <laughs> on Monday. I love you. Um, I'll I see you next week. <laughs>